Good morning, sweet church. You were made for glory. When I see you every Sunday, I'm reminded of that. Thank you. Well, last week we saw from 1 Peter chapter 1 that we were made for glory. We saw that we were made for glory from before the foundation of the world. But we saw that there was more to see than could be seen. Prophets and angels have been trying to see it, but they can't see it perfectly because it's indescribable. The salvation past and present and future is so huge, it actually transcends time itself. And that salvation is ours. It's God's gift to us. Peter's saying it's our inheritance, his promise, our benefit, and it can't be lost. It can't be stolen. It can't be misplaced because he's keeping it for us, even as he is keeping us for heaven. We spoke last week about the invisible imperishable in heaven. And this week, we'll see the evidence of God's work from heaven in his workmanship in the church. And we'll begin to see in our text this morning that he takes those whom he has given life, made for glory, and then he sets them apart for glory. I'm saying set apart because that's what holiness means. Holiness means being set apart. It means differentness. It means other. And throughout this part of the letter, 1 Peter, Peter's explaining that God's not only chosen them from before the foundation of the earth for heaven, but has designed that they should also live on earth as they are in heaven, holy unto him. Holiness is not about being a better person. It's about being set apart for God, the God that we love because he first loved us. It's about us living in response to the mercy that he's given us in grace. We've seen so far in this letter how God the Father, Son, and Spirit have all been at work in accomplishing the salvation of the church. Apart from any works that we've done, any choices that we've made, any merit in ourselves. Until we get to verse 13, all we see of our redemption is God's magnificent plan from heaven from before the foundation of the world. This morning, we'll see that the fruit of his plan in the calling of the church is to set us apart for holiness. So if you have your blue Bibles in front of you or your own, we're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 2, 12. That's on page 1014 in the blue Bible in front of you. So let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 2.12, which begins on 1014 in the blue Bibles in front of you. And as we read, we'll walk through two main points from our passage. The first main point that we'll look at today is that God calls us to be holy. And the second point is that Christ is our pattern in holiness. So if you found 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, let's read together now. God's word for us. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him... A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Church, this is a precious word for us. Let us pray and ask God for help to receive it. Oh God, you are the one who sows imperishable seed. It is not the quality of my preaching. It is not the quality of our hearing. It is not how smart we are to receive the word. It is not how good we are to deliver it. Oh God, it's only because you give life and we are praying right now that you, oh God, for your own glory would sow imperishable seed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our first point this morning is taken from the very first part of the text. In verse 116, and it would be helpful if you have your Bibles at the ready. In verse 116, he says, to be holy. And why? What is the reason? It's because he is holy. And in a sense, the passage today is the application of the passage from last week. To live according to our calling. God is here setting the church apart, calling the church to live as he has already declared her to be holy. He specifically calls the church here to be holy and how she thinks and how she lives and how she loves. We see that starting in verse 1, 13, with a call to think differently, with a holiness of mind. He says in chapter 113, Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Consider how he links thought with action in holiness. They go together. We are not mindless actors, and we are not passive philosophers or theologians. God planned the salvation of the church and then acted on the plan. And thus, we were chosen and have been redeemed according to his foreknowledge. He calls us to holiness of mind in how we think and to love him with all of our mind, setting every thought captive to make it obedient to him. And then with sober thinking and a living hope, he calls us to action, to live out our living hope through holy conduct. You see, the holiness in this text begins in the mind But it does not end there. Because the point of thinking is application. The reason we seek to understand is to obey. The reason we want to know God is to love God. The purpose of right doctrine is worship. Holiness here begins in the mind, but it does not end there because it has practical outworkings. Church, The spiritual life is not impractical. It's imperishable. Everything we think about has a consequence in the way that we live. And when I say everything, I think I mean everything. Everything in our mind has some way of making itself out in our life. All the hidden thoughts that no one else sees, they see in our life. And honestly, all the hidden thoughts that we don't even know we have, we see them in our life. We hear ourselves say things that we think, where did that come from? It came from our heart. The heart that you can't look down and see, the overflow of it, it comes out in our mouth. It comes out in the way that we live. It comes out in the way we spend time and spend our energy. It comes out in the way that we fret or are anxious. 
It comes out in every glorious thought we have of God and every genuine, sweet, satisfying hope that we have in Him. And they come out in every selfish ambition and desire that we have. All these things you can't see in the heart, they find a way to make themselves play out in life. Everything we're thinking about has some consequence in the way we live. And if we want to know who we are on the inside, we could start by looking at what we're actually doing with our life. And so he says, prepare your minds for action. This is very interesting, right? Because the one who writes this is Peter. Not known for thinking before he does anything. Peter. That Peter is telling us to prepare your minds for action because he's learning from the Lord and he's being changed. Action begins in the mind and our thoughts end in action, specifically to live holy lives set apart for him. That's what he's saying here in verse 116, to be holy, to be set apart, and specifically not be conformed to the patterns of the flesh, the passions of former ignorance, as we see in verse 114. We see the connection here, right, between being wrong in our thinking and wrong in our living. They go together, just as holy thoughts are connected with holy conduct. And here the Lord calls us to holy living in 117 where he says to them, conduct yourselves with fear in your exile. So also in chapter 2, verse 1, he says to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then in verse 2, 11 and 12, he calls them to abstain from the passions that war against their soul. So he's connecting what they're thinking with what they're doing. And he's warning them in both. Remember last week how we considered the church, the first readers, the first hearers of this letter, they were exiles because of social stigma and eventual Roman persecution. Remember that? But here we see their bigger troubles are not political and they're not social at all, but spiritual and rooted in the lawless passions of the flesh. And as we see in chapter 1, verse 18, sometimes those sinful patterns that they adopted from their forefathers and refined to better suit their own sinful passions of the heart. We see that again in chapter 2, verses 11, where he reminds the saints how the passions of the flesh are actually warring against their souls. But later on in chapter 5, we'll see the devil is prowling around, looking to spiritually devour them. But here, the problem is not the devil. Here, the problem is not Roman persecution. Here, the problem is their own sinful passions. Church, the sinful patterns of the hearts and the futile ways of their forefathers, which they may have been inclined to take up as their own, were a greater threat to their holiness than Rome was. Even the demonic attacks that were about to come Thus, right away from this passage, we see that not all evil against us is from outside of us. Much of it 
is from within us. It's from our selfish passions. God knows this about you, church. He knows this about you. That's why, in order to make you holy, he died for you. So here's one application for us. Okay. What is it that clutters your mind? What is it that distracts you from thinking right thoughts about God and your neighbor, yourself, the world around you? What is it that keeps you from thinking about things that are noble and true and excellent and praiseworthy? These things that we're called to think on it. And what would it look like to get rid of those thoughts? To think about something else. What would it look like in your life to get rid of those thoughts and think about things that actually were for God's glory and your good? What would it look to get rid of those thoughts so that you could love God with more of your heart and mind? Another question. What are some of the futile ways of our forefathers that have been passed down to us? What are some of the futile ways that we see ourselves even now passing on to our children? What are ways we can do to get rid of that stuff? To recognize it as evil and vile and unsatisfying and just ditch it. And then finally, what are some patterns that you see in your life? That as a result of these patterns, it dulls your thinking so that you're not sober-minded, so that you're not thinking with a sense of action to obey. What are these things, these patterns, these thoughts, and what would it look like, just for a moment, delight in the Lord a little bit and ask God to help you? We should take heart, church, and a warning that the inner passions that war against us, seemingly hidden from others as we learn to fight the war alone, are not unusual. They're not uncommon because we see them here in the text. The first readers of this text were dealing with the same things that we are. The war against each of you and against all of us is not strange because it's rooted in the same fallen nature of Adam. And God is calling them and us to be separate from that old nature in our thinking, in our living but also in the way that we love. We see that in verse 1, 22. He says, to love one another earnestly with the heart, from the heart. And in chapter 2, verse 2, that we should long for pure spiritual milk so that we may grow up in our salvation. And then finally, we see it in chapter 2, verse 4, where we are drawn to Christ. Out of what? Out of love. Our living stone, our cornerstone drawn out of love to him, and then with a greater capacity to love other living stones that are also being drawn to him. Redeemer, we are not set apart in isolation for isolation. He's not calling us out of the world so we can live alone by ourselves. It's not good for man to be alone. That's not the point. Remember our pattern, the Trinity last week. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all working together to achieve our salvation. God is not alone. He is in perfect community. And when we are alone, we are not right. 
He is not calling us out from everything so we can be solo. He's calling us to be separate, not for isolation or in isolation, but to be built together into something new. That's chapter 2, verse 5. He is drawing us out of the world so that we can be drawn together into something that the creation has never seen. I have no idea what I'm talking about. None of us do. It's something made of living stones built around Jesus. Has anyone ever seen this thing? Because it's in heaven. It's what God is doing in us right now. This is amazing and it blows the mind. It also ought to inspire us to worship. A reverent sense of awe that God is doing something in us that we can't even see. Ruth, he's doing something in your heart you can't even see. But I see it. It's godliness. Kevin, there is something God is doing with your life that you can't even see. But the rest of this church sees it because it's called sanctification. There is something God is doing in all of us that none of us can see, but he's telling us here in this letter (laughs) that it's an inheritance that can't be lost. And it's a living hope. And we're living stones being built around a cornerstone for his glory. I've never seen this. But church, I want it so bad. I want this for you. This is our hope. This is our living hope. We are, each of us, new creations in Christ. But we are also, each of us, members of a new creation. This is the spiritual house he's talking about in 2.5. And the angels are in heaven watching it being formed. That's where we left off last week. Angels in heaven are watching the spiritual house being formed. Not by our own hands, but by God's. Not by our own works, but his. Not because of our merit, but his. Not by our sweat and blood, but his. God is doing this in us, here. This Trinitarian masterpiece that is our salvation and our living hope. In love he made us, and in holiness we are called to love one another with a sincere love from the heart. Let me illustrate it from Peter's life this way. All three of these, right? Thinking and living and love from Peter's life. Remember in Acts, Peter's asleep and he has a dream. And in the dream, it's a weird dream. It's a sheet that's being lowered with all sorts of unclean animals. And God says, Peter, kill and eat. Well, the Old Testament dietary laws were a way of reflecting the holiness of God's people, setting them apart, making them different from the rest of the world around them. God made this little people, Israel, drop them right smack dab in the middle of the east, the Middle East, in the middle of everything, and said, be different from everybody. That's the way God thinks. He takes Israel, puts them right in the middle of everything, and says, don't be like anyone. You be holy unto me. And one of the ways that you're going to be holy is by what you eat and don't eat. Okay, so Peter, from that frame of reference, he's seeing these things that are unholy being dropped down and hearing God say, take up and eat. And Peter initially pushes back and says, no, out of a longing for holiness. It's an immature understanding of holiness 
And then God explains it to him, and this is what happens. He goes to a man's house. His name is Cornelius. He's a Gentile. And then he gives the gospel to a Gentile and his whole family. And his whole family hear and believe and are saved. And we see something happening here in the way that Peter is thinking about holiness and living it out. And we see something of a capacity for Peter to love Gentiles for whom Christ died. Holiness of thought and action and love are all depicted here as God shows Peter and us what he means when he calls us to be holy. More than a dietary law, holiness is a longing for things that feed our souls and stir our spiritual appetites as new creations. Peter's holiness was not about what he didn't eat. And it wasn't about not going and spending time with Gentiles. It was about having a greater love for God and man. And then out of love for God, he went to Cornelius, and and then the whole household is saved. It's a different mind than what he had before. And God is changing our understanding of holiness too. So far we see in this text this Trinitarian masterpiece of salvation and the living hope that is given in chapter 1, verses Uh, Verse 12, that our response to God is to long for holiness, to be holy as he is holy. We see this several times in the text. From chapter 1, verse 18, in light of of knowing that we were ransomed from who we used to be to who we would otherwise become apart from his salvation, that's why we long to be changed. We see it in chapter 1, verse 23, that since we have been born again from imperishable seed, We should long to live with imperishable hope. And we also see it from chapter 2, verse 2, that having tasted that the Lord is good, we long for pure spiritual milk. Do you see that the way we think and the way we live and the way we love reflects something of who God is? And it draws us closer to him with a greater joy than this world has ever known or could give us. The root of holiness is love for God. And the fruit of holiness is also love for God. So if we rightly understand what God is saying so far in the text, then it leads to obedience, to strive. Because the mercy we see in 118 softens the heart and leads us to be changed from the inside out. So church, our holiness now is a response to God's salvation in us. That salvation that was given to us because we were made for glory. And thus, for glory, being set apart, being drawn out of the love of the world and the sinful patterns of the flesh to a living hope as living stones and a spiritual house built around Jesus, the one who we love because he first loved us. We love him and want to be like him. And this is Our second and last point today. The first is that God sets us apart as holy. The second is that Christ is our pattern in holiness. This is what we see in chapter 2, verse 4. And following when Peter is saying that, that they and us are being built together as a spiritual house of living stones set around Jesus who was rejected 
and set apart himself and made the cornerstone. In fact, throughout this passage, we see Jesus is the one after whom we are made. In 120, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And we're also foreknown. That's what we saw in chapter 1, verse 2, from the, the beginning of this whole letter. It's to the elect, exiles, who were foreknown. Jesus is foreknown, we're foreknown. In 121, he was raised from the dead and given glory. Who else is raised from the dead and given glory? Church, that's us. Because he is our pattern. In 2.4, he is the living stone. And who is like him? We are. Like living stones. Built around him as a cornerstone. He was rejected by men, but chosen by God. Who else is rejected by men, but chosen by God? Church, it's us. The universal church, all people who have ever believed in God by faith, rejected by the world, chosen by God, and built into a spiritual house because Christ is our pattern. And then in 2.9, we like him are being built into this house. He's the cornerstone and we are the rest of the house. He is the cornerstone of the spiritual house in which we're included. And he was rejected, just like we are just like the the listeners, the readers of this first letter were. They were exiles. Remember that from last week? Let me show you. So the first readers of this letter were exiles. Could it be that they and we are strangers in the world more because of what God has made us than what the world has done to us? God, not Rome, has made them exiles. Because he's the one that's called them out of the world. Out of the passions of the flesh that once were their home and that once were their old creation, their old nature. He's called them to a city whose foundations are not built by human hands. I'm not saying that Roman um, persecution was easy or I'm not even saying that it was not real. I'm saying that ultimately anyone who is called by God to be holy and made fit for heaven is going to be in exile until then because this is no longer our home. Why? Well, because our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. Church, if our citizenship is in heaven, then we will always be exiles here in the world. Not because of Rome but because of God. Who else was in exile? The Word made flesh because He is our pattern. By His Spirit, He is changing us from the inside out and making us fit for heaven. He is shaping us as stones for a spiritual house that unless He builds, we labor in vain. He's changing us from old to new, from death to life, Isolation from God and man to community and union with both. From once not being a people to now being a people. He is setting us apart and drawing us out of the darkness into his marvelous light in 2.9. He is shaping us, you, this week. He's shaping you this week. 
to be more fitted perfectly for heaven. Progressively and by degrees over time, through many dangers, toils, and snares, church, he is fashioning us providentially through every detail of our life to make us ready for heaven. God is conforming us to God to be holy because he is holy. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, from glory to glory. We cannot see all that is in heaven. We don't understand the fullness of the inheritance that are kept for us. We can only see in parts dimly as in a mirror. Someday, though, we will see face to face. But by looking at one another, recognizing the gospel evident and fruitful in our lives, we get a little glimpse of what heaven is. And it's only as we live in community that, we are, that we're able to hear others affirm the gospel in us and recognize God's workmanship in us. You see, from the very beginning, God's plan was to set apart a people for himself. That's what it says in chapter 2, verse 9, a people for his own possession. The first ones who hear this letter felt like exiles in the world. And here God is telling them and us that we are not scattered for long, but actually being built together into something greater than the creation has ever seen. This is all very good, but it's hard to see. I know. I know it's hard to see. Let me illustrate this truth of the text from the text in 124 and 25, where the passage that begins with, all flesh is like grass, ends with, this is the good news that was preached to you. What? What's the good news there? That we're like grass? Is that the good news? No. No. But that's The good news is that God's imperishable word is a seed that gives imperishable life and that we are imperishable. That's the good news. The world and everything in it reflects the consequences of sin and reminds us of the perishable as a contrast to the word of God that stands forever. The good news is that his word stands forever and that Jesus rose from the dead, the word made flesh stands forever. And therefore, we who are born again of this seed and abide in Christ are also imperishable. The good news is that Jesus is not like these flowers that Chris brought in last week. These are the flowers he brought in last week. And remember, they were lovely a week ago. They were very pretty. Not so much now. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Our flesh will perish for sure, but even that is not bad news in light of the new creation body that's to come. The good news is that Jesus is not like these flowers, church, and thus neither are we. This should help us to have more sober thoughts like we were told to do in 113 rather than to crush our spirits. 
Our inheritance is imperishable and kept in heaven for us. So our perishable flesh is contrasted with our living hope. This is what it means in verse 121 when he says that our faith and our hope are in God because he is the one who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. Our flesh is like the grass, it's true, but if Christ is our pattern, then we will be raised from the dead as well with new bodies. If we are in Jesus, though our momentary lives and beauty and strength will die like these flowers, our salvation is forever. It's forever because Christ is forever, and if he is our pattern, then we are forever, and we don't have to worry about a week ago. These things are beautiful. 96 years old, 70 years in command. She's gone. That's all of us, church. And there's better things ahead if we are in Christ and he is our pattern. The better thing is the spiritual house. And if we are in Christ and we are built around him as a cornerstone, then that is our future. He died, rose again, and he lives. And therefore, we also will live in him. But what of those whose glory is entirely like these flowers? What of those people? What of you here today? You hear this and you think, I have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. I think I might actually be more like these flowers. I'm strong, I'm beautiful, I'm smart. Everyone likes me. That is not always going to be the same. What of those who are like these flowers, vibrant and beautiful one day and dead the next? This is where I want to connect two dots. Between these flowers that we see clear as day and the spiritual house that none of us have seen, but we've discussed throughout this text. We saw the glory of those who are built around the cornerstone. We saw that. But what of those who are not built around the cornerstone? How can the scripture be so harsh as to say they are destined for destruction? Because the reality of life is that everything dies. Everything. Just like these flowers. The flowers here are a visible illustration both of those who are contrasted with them and those who are just like them. That's what we see in verse 2, 7, and 8. Those who are destined for destruction, even if made in the image of God, how is that? How can those made in God's image be destroyed? Church, Jesus was destroyed. And he was not made in the image of God. He is God. More than being an image bearer like us, he himself is God. And he descended into hell after he was destroyed. And why? Because God is holy and he hates sin. And when Jesus takes on the sin of the world, for all those for whom he dies, the sin is placed on him and the Father, the Father then sees not the Son with whom he's pleased. He sees the sin that he hates and he in holiness and righteous judgment destroys it. Because he's holy. That's what we see in 117 when Peter says that God judges impartially. Impartially? Yes. Even so much so that if sin is placed on his son, then Jesus dies 
That's how impartial he is. Whatever good work we're hoping to bank on, remember, Jesus died because of bad works placed on him. Since he didn't even do, but he was clothed in them, and he died for sin. For those who reject the cornerstone, though, this is an important part of the text. For those who repent and don't reject the cornerstone, there is life everlasting. So I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, to consider this, how fear and sadness, these are realities of the world in which we live. Fear and sadness and grief and loss, what if these truths pointed you to something beyond the perishable? Today, what if what if you, you understood the scripture and this, this illustration here and you recognized that you yourself were in a bad situation and you let sadness and grief remind you that this world doesn't last and it helps your heart be softer to hear the gospel of a God who sows imperishable seed to give eternal life. I have two final illustrations for you okay. regarding God's holiness. One day Peter was in a boat He was fishing with Jesus. Just in general, anywhere you see people in a boat with Jesus, it's about to get gnarly. And it did for Peter. Jesus is telling Peter how to fish. It's not making a whole lot of sense to Peter. But he does it. And something about the catch, I don't know what it is, but something about the catch turned Peter's eye to recognize that Jesus wasn't just an awesome fisherman. He was holy. And his response to Jesus was, away from me. Because in that moment, he recognized his own sin. Let me help you understand this, church. We are understanding the scripture right when we recognize our own sin. And we are responding God correctly when there's a sense of reverent fear of his holiness. And then when we draw near to God, not because of our sin or in spite of our sin, but because of his holiness that he gives us in Christ, then we are rightly understanding the gospel. And one more illustration that's not quite as biblical. It is biblical. It's not from the Bible. Chewing gum. Chewing gum. Think about the last time, kiddos, you were chewing gum. How satisfying was it in your stomach? You didn't swallow it. You're always chewing and never, ever being satisfied. All the goodness of the flavor, but never being satisfied. Versus pure spiritual milk. After you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, it's not just a flavor in your mouth. It's food for your stomach It's life for your soul. It would be foolish at dinner time to say, I got the gum. I'm okay, mom. I don't need your dinner. I've got gum. Because that gum is never going to satisfy you. And it's just as foolish. It's actually more foolish to walk around in this great big world that God has made and say, you know what, God? I think I'm content with all of the things that aren't going to last. If you are a person made in the image of God, you could could be designed for so much more than this world has to offer. 
Every time you're hungry for food, think about what would it be like if I only had gum? And every time you walk around the world and you feel some joy or sadness or happiness or, or grief, recognize you were designed for more than this world has to give you. You were designed for spiritual milk that satisfies the soul. You can think rightly about that, about gum and about flowers and the world that we're made. You can hear God's word. Ask your parents, what does this mean? But ask your parents for understanding so that you could apply what you've heard. It'll be good for your soul, kiddos. Church, you were made for glory, to be set apart for glory. And in the following weeks, we're going to see this remarkable way that God leads us in the same pattern of Christ. Through many dangers and toils and snares, through we're going to see submission, some hard, some hard truths about human submission and human relationships, and then harder truths about suffering until he delivers us to glory in due time in chapter 5. Because we were made for glory, church, and even now we're being set apart for glory and holiness. We ended last week, remember, with the angels in heaven looking down on this thing that God was doing in redemptive, human and redemptive history. And at the end of this text, it ends with Peter calling the church to live such holy lives, that Gentiles, although they would persecute you and accuse you of doing evil, they would see your good works and glorify God on the day of his coming. Church, all of creation is watching us. Angels in heaven, the unbelieving world around us, the Father, the Son, the Spirit who have fashioned us for glory, they're all watching us this week. If you think that you are alone and unnoticed and unimportant and irrelevant, you're wrong. You are image bearers of God. And if you're a Christian, you were made for glory. And this week is spiritual warfare that starts with the passions of the heart and ends with repentance to God and us being set apart for glory. Let's pray.